Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And this is our episode for July. And on this occasion, we are doing one of our deep dives into just one story, one episode. We chose to do one from new Doctor Who this time. And thanks to 136 voters on Twitter, we are going to be talking this episode about The Girl Who Waited. Yes, indeed. Hello, Dave. Hello, listeners. Uh, the Girl Who Waited, that was one of my two picks, Dave. I I went for two very similar stories, Amy's Choice and The Girl Who Waited, both very Amy-centric stories, and I'm not actually an Amy fan, which will come out later, uh, and that's the one that got up. Uh, it was neck and neck with Amy's Choice, actually. It was. Uh, the, the voting did actually shift a bit over the couple of weeks we had it open, but this is the one the listeners wanted us to chat about. Uh, we said, don't pick your favourite story, pick the one you want to hear us dissect. And so hopefully that's what they did, and hopefully it'll be a good discussion. But before that, a couple of other little things as always. But Rob, how are you? I'm well, Dave. Uh, I mean, we seem to do a COVID update at the start of these podcasts of, <laughs> for the last few months. And I guess as a whole, some states here have gone a bit backwards. Look, our state is definitely the outlier now in Australia. I mean, we've gone back completely to hard lockdown for six weeks. Mm. Um, mandatory masks are coming in as of tomorrow. So um, whilst other states are opening up, and look, Sydney's got a couple of little flare-ups, but I think your daily stats today were 11 Ours were 370, so... But as we keep saying, there's a lot of people who listen to us in countries where things are far, far worse, and so we, you know, we, we're not trying to say woe with us. I think a lot of people have got it a lot worse than us, both as a country and as uh, as individuals, you know. We're, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm just sort of you know, working from home, looking after myself, reading a lot of books, watching a lot of TV. Yeah. It's a sensible thing to do at the moment. Yeah, look, it, it is, it is. But uh, yeah, we hope you're all looking after yourselves. And hopefully there'll come a time soon where we don't have to start with a, uh, a how are you that ends up with this is how we're doing with COVID. Yeah, the, I look forward to that day. But look, uh, before we get into the news, we always read our online reviews at the start of an episode. And I've got a, a few great ones here. The first is from Apple Podcast, Devin Dan on Apple Podcast. Do you think he's from... Uh, Devon Dave, or does he just like Devon sandwiches? Or maybe his parents like Devon. <laughs> yeah, so Devon Dan, look, he's no, he's from Great Britain, so I think he's probably from Devon. He says, uh, one of the best five stars. There are many brilliant Australian Doctor Who podcasts. Well, that's true. That is and, very true. Yeah, extremely true. And the Doctor Who show is one of the best. I love listening to Rob and Dave's take on the many in-depth and varied Who topics. Always knowledgeable and well-informed. Never cruel or cowardly, and regularly <laughs> hilarious. Well, that's nice. The Fifth Doctor, I love this bit, Dave. The Fifth Doctor will forever be known as Davo in my house. Even my wife calls the Fifth Doctor that. Great stuff. <laughs> you know, I genuinely did not know before we started doing this that people in the rest of the world didn't call him Davo. <laughs> It's just so natural to us that we just thought everyone calls him Davo, but no, apparently it's an Aussie thing. I know, and I, I heard a... I, I won't call him out by name in case it's embarrassing to them, but I heard a UK podcast in the car earlier today, and they said something about Peter Davis, and then one of them referred to him as Davo, and I thought, ah, they called him Davo! <laughs> <laughs> but oh, yeah, li- literally, as long as I've been in fandom for, for decades, he has been Davo, so uh, yeah. there you go. 
Absolutely. Now, these next two are from a, uh, a platform called Podchaser. We put the podcast out far and wide, Dave, as you know. It's on Spotify. It's on uh, all sorts of platforms. Uh, Podchaser is one I don't really go and, and look at. You, you put these things on the platforms and they're sort of set and forget. But this particular uh, platform lets you do reviews. And so we have a review here from Richard Smith. This is from the uh, 4th of April. So this is going back some time. Richard, apologies for this. Uh, that we haven't got to you before. Uh, simply didn't see the Podchaser information. So he says, Very fair-minded and entertaining discussion of the highs and lows of Doctor Who. Quick to praise something good, but not afraid to point out shortcomings. Well worth a listen. I think that's a pretty good appraisal of us. Yeah, that's certainly what we aim to do, so that's that's good. Thank you, Richard. And uh, also from the 13th of April, April is clearly a good month over at Podchaser. This is from Palindromic, who I think is our friend Mark Cockrum, the human palindrome. I'm just throwing that out there. And who I believe to be Mark says, a show that has really evolved over the years and settled into a very entertaining format. And again, I think that's true too. This is our fifth year. And I think we do have a sort of a format now compared to the early episodes. <laughs> we have evolved. That is certainly true. Mm. So anyway, thank you for those online reviews. Please leave them for us on Apple Podcasts or on other platforms like Podchaser if you come across us there. And uh, we'll read you out at the start of every show. Absolutely. Now, speaking of our format, we usually now at this point like to discuss anything that's in the news. And Rob, you've got something for me here that I haven't heard about, but looking at the headline on the run sheet, I'm very intrigued by Tell Me More. Okay. Uh, Neil Gaiman, who obviously wrote a, a great Doctor Who episode and then what I regard as a slightly dodgy Doctor Who episode, but I think you like his second one, don't you, Dave? I prefer his second one to his first, and I know that's a minority opinion. Yeah, yeah, I thought you did. And look, after he sort of got a bad reaction to that second one, I think there was a vibe that, oh, well, we've scared Neil Gaiman off. He's, he's you know, done a couple. He's not coming back. But he's actually been talking recently about possibly writing again for Doctor Who, and he's quite bullish about it. Uh, in fact, he says, I love the Doctor. I think Jodie Whittaker's a fabulous Doctor. I'd love to write for her. And, and he really would have liked to have written for Peter Capaldi, he says as well. But he was busy making the Good Omens um, miniseries at the time. And I thought, oh, this is this is really cool. This this is Neil Gaiman still showing a real interest in the show. And I think it's pretty genuine with the, the length of the quotes here in the story over at Digital Spy. I think he'd really like to do this. Now, I don't think he'll get a chance to write for Whittaker. I reckon Whittaker's into her final series now i think that's what's being written now i don't think he'll get a chance but a future neil gaiman story for like a 14th doctor or something fabulous bring it on let's see if he can um, do better than nightmare and silver yeah absolutely i mean my couple of quick takes off that uh firstly the idea that a writer of neil gaiman's um biography and standing would particularly care what a few mealy mouth doctor who fans on social media say is just to me quite ludicrous and laughable and I don't think that would scare him away at all. But yeah, look, I'll be very interested to see what he does. As I said, I like one of his episodes more than the other, but I respect them both. He's a very capable writer. He definitely has interesting ideas mm. and in that respect, I think it would be a shame if he didn't get the chance to write for Jodie because one thing that we have said the Jodie era has at times lacked is that weirdness and that diversity that I think Neil Gaiman could really um, add to. So I think you're right, Rob. I think if this is her last season, the slots are probably informally allocated. But 
I'll be very pleased if he did. Yeah, look, if she does go on to do another uh, series and he can write for her, I, I think that would be wonderful too. I just have this feeling that she's going to do three and be out the door, probably with Chibnall. So he just won't get the chance. Yeah, look, we shall see. Mm. Uh, a very quick news update from me. Uh, we are very excited and very big fans of the Target book range at this podcast. We are indeed. And we were looking forward to the next round to be published, which were going to be coming out about this time. But unfortunately, they have all been put back to the 11th of March next year. Uh, I think that is a combination of um, the slowdown in production due to, due to COVID and also a concern about sales again due to COVID. So uh, they are going to be coming out in the 11th of March. So a little bit of a longer wait for those. Yeah, COVID's affected a lot in the publishing industry. On the day we record this, Bauer Media, Dave, have closed down Men's Health, Women's Health, L, Harper's Bazaar, and a bunch of magazines. You know, the, the big glossy magazines that have just kept on keeping on through all sorts of issues over the years. Print is not an easy industry to be in at all. And mm. uh, they've just all been closed. I think they were temporarily put on hiatus earlier in the year, but now they're done. Done and dusted. Those magazines don't exist in Australia anymore. Publishing is really tough, both book and magazine. Yeah, I think some of the sort of, not to say this pejoratively, but the, the, the garage band Publishers, you know, where it's 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 one guy, his computer, maybe an assistant, and 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 a you know, and a machine, or even just a contract mm. to do the you know to do the printing in shop. Um, they're kind of keeping going, but yeah, it's it is it is tough, and 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 yeah, so that range has been delayed. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I saw what was it? I saw a Sherlock Holmes magazine launching the other day, like a new magazine launching. But when you look at it, it's like based on contributions from people who aren't getting paid and all of this. So it's 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 almost just like a really really glossy fanzine. Um, yeah, right. You know. So I I know what you mean. You you can still have magazines these days, but they are run on the smell of an oily rag. These big glossy things that involve you know a cast of thousands. No, they just they just don't make sense anymore. Yeah. Moving on, I've got one here. Now, <laughs> we always joke, Dave, that when Who actors are asked, you know, these ridiculously basic questions like, would you like to go back to the show? You know, it's like asking someone, would you like another champagne or would you like $10,000? You know, what, what are they going to say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but for the record, David Tennant and Matt Smith have both said they'd love to do an episode with Jodie Whittaker. Tennant, of course, acted with her in Broadchurch, so they're good chums. Um, I think Matt Smith's up for anything. That wasn't what was interesting to me, though. It made me think that by the time these two get together with Jodie on screen, if it ever happens, it'll probably be the 60th anniversary, and Jodie probably won't even be the incumbent by then. So I, I found that more interesting to think about. Like, how would this happen? We, we might have three returning Doctors, four if Capaldi joined in. I, I don't know if he would, though. And I think Eccleston's out of the picture. So could we have three or four Doctors coming back to join the 14th Doctor in three years' time? I started thinking about that sort of stuff. Yeah, look, I could imagine both Peter Capaldi and David Tennant as people who grew up with the show as fans and no doubt have the same love for the three Doctors and the five Doctors that we do. Mm. I think that would tempt them both. Uh, I, I don't think that Jodie would refuse to appear in it unless she was in that sort of place that Tom Baker was of, I'm just trying to restart my career and move away from being the Doctor. The last thing I need is to be the Doctor again. Mm. But television is far more diverse these days, so it, it's possible. I think that the 60th anniversary is going to be a very interesting take because 
it could literally fall between two eras. It could even be the regeneration story. It's not impossible. Yeah, yeah, it could be very, very interesting. And you're right about Doctor Who being different these days. I mean, I was thinking about this. Obviously, Karen Gillan plays a big part in the episode we're talking about later. And I thought, geez, didn't Karen Gillan kick on to have a big career in, like, Hollywood and film? And she still obviously has that career. And, geez, didn't Jenna Coleman do well as well, like Victoria and all these other TV shows she's made? And I thought, you know, being a, a, a Doctor Who girl, in quotation marks, or even the Doctor these days, isn't quite the career killer it used to be. <laughs> you can actually do very well after Doctor Who these days. Yes, I think that's very true. Plus, the way that television is made as well is far more flexible. So the ability to release somebody for a week and they'll just go to Carter, film their scenes and then go back is far more easier than it was back in the old days. And also back in the days when a lot of these actors were doing stuff on stage even more than they were doing on screen. Mm. And you, you, you can't just take two weeks off from doing your, your weekly rep or your Hamlet in, in London or your tour of Yorkshire or whatever. Like, it, it just wasn't possible. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, look, that was that was very interesting for me. And another quick update more than anything from me, and that is that for those in the rest of the world, you'll be very pleased to know that uh, here in Australia, our season 14 Blu-ray box sets are finally shipping. <laughs> yes. They are finally arriving. It's been far, far too long. I've been holding off watching this season for a while, even though I've wanted to, because I want to watch the new Blu-rays when I get them. Uh, so that's really good. But, Rob... I did a quick look today. I can't find any evidence that there's another set on the way, let alone announced. Yeah, I've got nothing on that, Dave. I knew you wanted to mention that. I've had a look around. I, I, I don't believe there is. Uh, I don't know, again, whether COVID has slowed things down, you know, because they obviously film a lot of extras for these things and they it takes a bit to put them together and they, they just don't want to announce it yet because they don't know when they can finish it. I, I don't even know what it would be. I do wonder, I don't know whether this is me being cynical or realistic here, but given how many of these releases have been delayed, often quite substantially, and or have come out and had errors on them that have required discs to be replaced, I would not be at all shocked if someone in that company's management said, okay, before we announce anything, let's be sure we're ready. Let's be sure it's right. Let's be sure we have enough time to get it there so we don't keep having these embarrassing delays and errors. That would not shock me at all. Yeah, that could be very true. But uh, just in terms of what it could be, what what do you think it could be, Dave? Maybe a Pertwee? I think that's likely. I think we there are five Pertwees they need to get out, and so they need to get into that. Um, a Davo's not impossible to get his second one out. I think we won't see McCoy for a while. I think that... We won't see season 22 for a while. They'll, they'll wait until they've got more of the longer-serving Doctors out before they finish off Collins too. Mm. Um, I hope that we'll see something from the 60s, but all the mail seems to be that they're very keen to include animations with them, and so these will take uh, a bit longer, and we will have to wait for the 60s. But, mm. yeah, look, I think I think a Pertwee's likely, but I generally don't know. So um, mm. I hope that by the time we reconvene in a month, we have got some news on that front. Yeah, that'd be nice. That'd be very nice. All right, let's move along to some short topics. Uh, I've got one here. I'm reading some Warhammer 40,000 novels, Dave, uh, broadly called the Horus Heresy. Now, 
you might be wondering why on earth am I mentioning this on a Doctor Who podcast? <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you read my mind. <laughs> One of the key writers to this series, and there are 58 books in this series so far, and that's not including like short story novellas and other things. This is just 58 novels, about 400 pages each. Uh, one of the key writers here is Dan Abnett, who has written... Gosh, he's written some big finish. He's written some Doctor Who comics, both for the standalone publisher and for Doctor Who magazine. Um, he is a fairly Doctor Who-centric dude, and yet he's deep, deep, deep into this Warhammer 40,000 stuff. And I've just got to say, I I love these books. They're big popcorn space opera things. It's like reading a novel about the Roman Empire, because so much of this future imperium as it's called in the far future is based on the roman empire like all the names of their ranks and the way they mm -hmm. operate and or that their soldiers are in legions and stuff like that so it's like right. it's like reading about ancient rome mixed with bernard cornwall's one of my favorite authors he did a series called sharp uh, about a napoleonic officer and thus far we've sort of concentrated a lot on one particular officer and it reminds me of the Sharp novels in the way that he has to deal with other officers and the way the men are commanded and all that sort of stuff and the officers sort of clash in the background and all that sort of stuff. So I like that. And of course it's sci-fi. So you've got spaceships and alien races and all sorts of stuff going on. And you know when you come across a book or an album, a film, a TV series, a comic, whatever it might be, and you think, hey how did they get in my head and know exactly the kind of thing I like personally? Because mixing the Roman Empire with sci-fi with, you know, sharp mm. is like my dream yeah. come true. And there's yeah. already 58 novels in the series. Like, are you Goodness. kidding me? This is, this is nuts. So I'm, I'm reading those like crazy at the moment. Very cool. Mm. <laughs> I, I genuinely had no idea where that was going, but no, I get it now. That's, <laughs> that's very cool. Thank you. I would just like to mention a tweet I sent out uh, last week that kind of went a little bit crazy, which doesn't happen from my tweets very often, mm -hmm. in fact, ever, really. <laughs> uh, I made a comment where I essentially reflected that back when I was a young fan in the late 80s and the McCoy era was on television, it was very much accepted wisdom that Dragonfire was the good story in season 24 yes. and everything else was kind of rubbish but Dragonfire was really cool you could sort of see the start of the Cartmelior happening etc 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 but whereas now it's kind of almost the forgotten one and you know why is that and there was a lot of people weighing into this conversation uh, I think most people kind of agreed with the premise I had that yes Dragonfire is no longer thought of as the best in the season that it was back in the 80s Part of it, I think, is the fact that Delta and the Bannerman has, for a certain segment of fandom, gone from this just embarrassment that we didn't talk about mm. to it's found its love and it's found its place in fandom. Paradise Towers, I think people are at least seeing what they wanted to try and do with this and what the script is trying to do. Mm -hmm. and, and there's an appreciation there, which I, I've certainly spoken about. But what, Rob, what did you think of all this? Because I know you weighed in a couple of times as well. Yeah, look, I, I broadly agree with, with the premise because I was there, you know, watching Dragonfire and it was like, oh, at last there's a good story this season. Oh, wow, this is... This is really great. Yeah. And, and and it has changed over time. I think I use the, the term, I think there's more light and shade in fandom now. There's it, it, It's okay to like the um, 
the silly one like Delta, you know, with the, with the green baby that grows up in a day or two because it eats the royal jelly or whatever it is. I, I, think, I think this is the thing. Like, when we'd all lived through the hiatus and there was a real sense in the 1980s, particularly in the back half, that Doctor Who could be cancelled at any moment. Mm. And when you're watching Delta and the Bannerman, with the thought at the back of your mind that if Doctor Who's not very good, it could be cancelled at any moment... I think that it's very hard to enjoy Delta and the Bannerman. Whereas 30 years later, when you just go, you know what? As a bit of fun, as a bit of entertainment, I can enjoy this. I think that's much easier. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's very comfortable to watch. You know, it's, it's, it's inoffensive. But at the time, yeah, you're right, because we'd had time in the run. It was like, God, that was terrible. Paradise Towers, you know, being so studio-based and... And just terrible looking in places like the pool cleaner and the the robot cleaners and stuff like that. Oh wow! Corridor's performance. Yeah, and then you get to this third story, and it's like, oh no, they've 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 balls it up again. <laughs> oh my god! But yeah. yeah, but now looking back in the fullness of time, when it's just one story among hundreds, both on TV and Big Finish and all of that. And as you say, there is a certain section of fandom, I think, who really appreciate it because they do like the more campy, fun sort of stories, you know? No, and I I certainly have come to appreciate it and and enjoy it. It is very much a case of, now that that classic series of Doctor Who is done, dusted, and in the past, am I happy that one of its 158 stories was Delta and the Bannerman and it did that weird, fun, just so different thing? Absolutely. Am I glad it was just the one story? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. <laughs> uh, a very short topic from me. Davo watches Crawling at present, primarily because I'm reading all those Horus Heresy novels. I, I've got into the last series of The Last Detective, and that's been a good series. I've, I've quite enjoyed it. It's, it's not always happy, uh, The Last Detective. Davo often fails. He's kind of like the fifth Doctor in some ways in it. Maybe oh, okay. maybe like a fifth doctor who's a bit more beat down by life and has obviously lost a bit more hair. So, you know, it's it, it's an acquired sort of taste, uh, you know, because you're not seeing this guy triumph all the time. But I do enjoy it. And I do like Sean Hughes, you know, tragic Sean Hughes, who died, gosh, a year or two back now of um, a liver disease. I think he, he, he liked to drink. Um, he's a perfect foil for Peter Davison in that series. Um, it, it, it's enjoyable, but it is crawling for me at the moment. I think I've got two or three left. Fair enough. It's not a series I've seen a minute of, I'm afraid. Yeah, look, it's it's worthwhile. You know, if, if you like murder mystery type things, that's generally the cases he's looking at. Um, if you like that kind of show, it's it's generic UK murder mystery, but with Davo. Fair enough. Mm. Uh, and speaking of seeing old doctors in stuff, in the literally 10 days that we had in Melbourne where the cinemas were open before we went back to lockdown. 10 I, days. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was the same with the gyms. They were open for 10 days and they were closed again. It was it was not good. But in that time, I did rush out and see a movie I've been waiting to see for some months. And that is The Personal History of David Copperfield, which I really, really enjoyed. And it actually proved to me that Amando Inucci is not just a one-trick pony, mm-hmm. which uh, very much pleased me, although I know he has big fans who feel that everything he touches is gold. I, I have pros and cons with Amando, but this was really, really good. Uh, it was really well written. It was really fun. It was a, There was a very light touch to the script and the direction that, that played into the story very well. Um, but the cast was fantastic. It's led by Dev Patel, who I've been just a huge fan of 
ever since I saw him as a boy in skins way, way, way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hugh Laurie, who of course needs no explanation. Tilda Swinton. Uh, ben Wishaw as Uriah Heap was just amazing. But the purpose I'm discussing this, yeah. Peter Capaldi. Really? He turns up and he is just having so much fun. Oh. This is this is Peter Capaldi, as I say, in a, a Mando Inucci script that's witty, clever. It takes the sort of the fun and the ridiculous nature of Dickens, David Copperfield, and, and the larger-than-life characters that are blown up in, in, in that narrative. And he just has so much fun in this role. And he keeps popping up. He's, he's the character that sort of keeps popping up to remind Copperfield of his past. And it's just... So lovely to see Peter Capaldi off the leash in that way. <laughs> so, oh, okay. So it's Dickens David Copperfield, not the popular Las Vegas entertainer David Copperfield. <laughs> That's right, yes. I see. No, I'm kidding. I knew it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was, just, it was just a really good Capaldi performance because I think he's done a lot of brooding, a lot of angry. Um, you know, his doctor was sort of in turns brooding and angry, but... I think we both liked his Doctor most when he was a little bit lighter and there was that sort of wicked twinkle in the eye. And this is just that turned up to 11. Oh, yeah. When when he comes on in that third series and he's he's got the wild hair and he's teaching at university, you know, as, as nuts as that idea was, that just worked so well. If you liked that Peter Capaldi, check out the David Copperfield movie because I think you'll really enjoy his performance. Alrighty then. Well, Dave... Rob, <laughs> the moment's been prepared for. Uh, 130-something people voted for it. The Girl Who Waited. The Girl Who Waited. Gosh, where do we start? I guess maybe some background to us seeing it and coming across it originally, perhaps? Uh, sure. Do you want to go first or shall I? Oh, look, I'll, I'll, I'll dive in. I saw this at the time of transmission, and I wasn't overwhelmed by the season at the time. I mean, think this is... Curse of the Black Spot, Rebel Flesh, also People, Good Man Goes to War, Night Terrors, Territory. I felt the series probably had as many hits as misses, or misses as hits, at the time. And then this came along. And then The God Complex came along, which I also adore. And that might be a hint as to what I think of The Girl Who Waited. And so I saw this as part of a little upswing towards the end of the series, where these two episodes back-to-back were decent... And then closing time came along and it wasn't god-awful. And there was this nice little tale on the end of this season that I quite liked. And I've got more to say, but I'll stop there. So my first experience was slightly different to yours. This is a very rare example of new Doctor Who that I did not see actually going out. Uh, There are two periods in the series history since it came back in 2005 Mm -hmm. where I didn't see it go out live. Um, One was the back half of season three where I was at... Uh, Air Force officer training and you know there was an officer's mess with one television and you know you're not going to spend your Saturday afternoon desperately trying to get all the others to watch Doctor Who (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine as you can imagine so I didn't see that too much later and and the back end of series six like you Rob I really struggled with this season Mm. Uh, I got to the second half of the Rebel Flesh and I just didn't watch it I just disliked the first half so much I'm just gone I'm not tuning in next week and uh, I then gave A Good Man Goes to War a go and I didn't like that at all uh, fortunately there was a mid-series break you remember it was, it was like the best part of six months I think between it was the first and the second half of series six 
the first episode back was Let's Kill Hitler. I thought, nope, open mind, go in, fresh start. Let's Kill Hitler came on, and at the moment where the Doctor came out of the TARDIS in a tuxedo, dancing around and just waiting to die for no apparent reason, I thought, <laughs> it's time for Doctor Who and I to just have a break from each other. That was the moment. That was the moment. And so I, I, I did, I just, I didn't want to be, I've said this before on the podcast, I didn't want to be one of these people who just turns in not enjoying the show just to, to bitch about it later. Mm. I thought, let, let, let's just not see each other for a while. And, and so I didn't watch Series 6 go out anymore. But across 2012, I did sort of do an episode every now and then when I was you know bored, quiet weekend, whatever. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll sort of work through this. So at some point I got to The Girl Who Waited, randomly on its own, in the middle of 2012 on a quiet weekend somewhere. Wow, so that we, we do have a really different sort of take on where we, where we were coming to this originally. We, we did, we did. So, Rob, 10,000 feet looking down on this episode. What do, you, what do you think? What's your vibe? Dave, I think this is great. I think this is really moffety with the ideas about time and how that's played with. And Now, I'm not saying that Moffat has that sort of story locked up. It just feels like an idea he's had and tossed out for someone else to write. Or at the very least, Tom McRae, who is the writer here, came along with an idea that's so Moffaty it appealed to Moffat's narcissism, maybe, about his own (laughs) writing. And he said, yeah, I'll have that. I'll stop there for the moment. But yeah, I think this is great, and I think it's Moffaty. I didn't actually know that this wasn't written by Moffat. I'd always assumed it was. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I just assumed that it was written by Stephen Moffat until I was looking to see who directed it and I saw who wrote it. I was like, that's not Stephen Moffat. Okay. Mm. Um, so I, I had no idea. Um, there were huge parts of this episode I had completely forgotten. I've, I've seen it once eight years ago and I remembered a couple of the key beats. I remembered a couple of the key scenes, but a lot of this was very new to me. I found this was a episode of three thirds Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one third where I was really intrigued and actually really getting into this episode and finding a lot to like. There was another third where I was yeah, not quite sure this is working. And there was a third I thought, this is absolutely horrible, Doctor Who. Really? Really. Oh, we're going to need to tease that out. Uh... Yeah, so that, that's that's my headline. All right. Well, look, before we move on, I'll also add the story is quite timely given... COVID in some ways. I mean, I don't want to overplay this, but when it starts and they're like, oh yeah, there's this virus going around and we're in this place where people who have the virus get sent. I had completely forgotten that aspect of the storyline. Yeah, me too. I might not have even put it up for a vote if I'd consciously thought about it because I thought, that's right. There's, oh, oh, you know, I'd not put two and two together at all. I'd forgotten that aspect of it completely. Yeah, me too. Hmm. What do you want to tease out first, Dave? Uh, I think that it would be useful to tease out how this is set up, mm. because I think this is very much the strength of the episode. I don't know whether it's the strength of the episode for you, Rob, but, or, or, or just a strength, but it certainly is the strength for me. Mm. And that is that I was being very effectively engaged by this episode as I watched it. It starts very much bang you're in they're arriving somewhere they're discussing it they're bantering then you're out there you're exploring a new world 
you then very quickly work out what the conceit is. You know, it, it reminded me a little bit of the start of Ark in Space, this empty, sterile, white area. Mm. One companion presses the wrong button and suddenly they're off in another place. Very, very Ark in Space vibes. That interested me. Um, the moment when Rory then goes and pushes the red button, but he can't get to Amy. I'm like, okay. And that, that was really, really interesting to me. And it then went on to creating a world that I was drawn into and I was intrigued and there's stuff I want to talk about the location but I don't think that's we're there yet do you know I, you know, I in those early scenes I really like the way they're talking to Amy then they I think they get distracted or do something else and they come back to her and she's like I've been here a week and it had been so long since I'd watched it I didn't have all the the story in my head and I thought oh yeah that that's a bit cheesy like what what's she eaten you know why isn't there a pile of poop in the corner of the room if she's really been there a week she should be looking a lot more you know bedraggled you know that that that's not done very well and then almost immediately and i love it when a story does this the story answers the question that's in your head and the doctor deduces that time is moving differently there and that's why she hasn't had to eat she hasn't felt hungry um, it, it doesn't quite make sense and it doesn't quite work if you actually put it under a microscope. But yes, it works enough. It, it is, as, as we keep saying in the podcast, Rob, the, the cover it with a line. Yeah. You know, you're, you're sitting there going, why doesn't she need to eat, Why, etc. And there's a line in there that goes, she doesn't need to eat because the... And you go, well, okay, that works. Yeah. It, 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 it's stupid. Like, it doesn't work, but it works. <laughs> and I just want to say, I'm glad it did that because sometimes stories don't do it and they are infuriating. But here it's like the, the writer respects you enough to know what you're thinking and answer your question, in, in the question in your head. It would have been very hard to buy what's coming down the pathway in this episode if they hadn't had that cheat in there. Mm. Yeah, that's true as well. What's a key highlight for you, Rob? What's something you want to talk to us about and, and really flag as a strength? I'll actually start by talking about something that, that's not a strength uh, for me usually, and that's Amy. I have always had a problem with the Amy character, going back to when she tries to have sex with the Doctor in the second or third story, and it's like, oh, this I don't like this character at all. And I found it very hard to warm to her. So at the time of transmission, even though we'd already had Amy's choice in the previous season where I'd had to admit to myself, I don't like Amy, but I really like this Amy story. Here we had another Amy-centric story, and I went into it thinking... I don't like the way they're bigging Amy up here. I don't like her character. And in this one, giving her the samurai sword and some of the stuff she does with it. Like, there's one scene where she runs into a room like she's Obi-Wan Kenobi and swings the sword around. There's, there's, there's no one to even fight. It just, it just looks really try-hard. And I was having these huge issues with with Amy I could see that I liked the story but Amy was kind of an impediment and over time as I've gotten a bit better with not so much liking Amy but maybe tolerating Amy I look now more towards the character stuff and the emotions of this story and I'm not as put off by them trying to big up Amy and make her this you know superhero type person um, which is how I really felt about it originally I, I can tuck that away a bit more now and you know and I'm, I, I can see they're just trying to show her as being different to the younger Amy like this Amy's grown up and she can use a samurai sword okay fair enough so I, I have a more stable relationship with the, the premise of the story now and the main character who is Amy okay we're going to disagree a lot today I think oh okay um, <laughs> Millie McKenzie um, will be so happy <laughs> hello Millie 
I'll start. I'll start with the point of agreement, which is like you. I rate Amy's choice as one of the highlights of the Matt Smith era. I thought that and um, Vincent and the Doctor were the two absolute standouts, not just from series five, but from the whole Matt Smith era. And they're both Amy centric episodes. And so, you know, although Amy doesn't always appeal to me, I can love Amy centric episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very impressed as well by Karen Gillan's performance here, and even though she was under some not always convincing old person makeup, (laughs) um, I thought that as an actress, she very clearly delineated the two Amys. Like you knew, even without the makeup, you would have known which was which. And I thought that was a very good performance from her. Mm. However, where I differ from you, I differ very strongly, is that I found that all of my other knowledge of Amy and all of my other experience of Amy bled into this story and made it absolutely impossible for me to buy it and to buy what happens in the story. Shall, shall, I, shall I go down this path now, Rob? Because yeah, this is a key. What's, what's an example of that? So I view the Amy-Rory relationship as a fundamentally unpleasant and toxic relationship. Hmm. I think the way that Amy treats Rory consistently throughout their relationship is horrible, toxic, unpleasant. Um, The way she's willing to cheat on him with the Doctor at a moment's notice was just awful. The way that she's belittling him, that he will drop everything for her. I mean, and we'll get to Rory shortly because Rory's a big positive in this one. Spoilers, Mm. but he is. (laughs) The, the The way that Rory treats that relationship and what he gets back from Amy, I have consistently found unpleasant and nasty and horrible. And so to try and hinge a whole denouement of the episode off us having to buy this love between two equals I just sat there and thought no this is a horrible toxic relationship and I'm not buying it and and in fact the way that she is talking to Rory and the way that she is so dismissive of Rory's feelings and so selfish in what she's doing sure within the story context I get why you would be after being left there for 30 years or whatever it was but it just reminded me all about how much I dislike this character and her relationship. And then layering on top of it, if if I say that the Rory-Amy relationship is toxic, when you put the Doctor into that threesome, mm. that just becomes a whole new level of unpleasantness. And again, this sort of, not sexual tension, but emotional tension between the Doctor and Amy versus the Amy and Rory again, just makes me feel so sorry for Rory and so disliking of Amy. I've said before about both Amy and Clara, they are characters who, if they were out to dinner with me, I would not want to talk to. I do not find them likable people. (laughs) Um, Compared to somebody like Bill Potts, who I just go, I want to go to the pub with Bill Potts. I want to go out for a night on the town with Bill Potts. Like, she would be awesome to talk to. Uh, Rose, for all her faults, would be, you know what, I could go out and have dinner with Rose and, like, have a great conversation. Um, Captain, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I could not do that with Amy. I could not do that with Clara. All right. So, so, So the episode relies on you buying their love, and I don't. So it, it actually had the wrong emotional effect for me. I've got a count to this, Dave. Good, good. And that's they, they, the writer, Tom McRae, fully acknowledges this flaw in Amy in the story. When she names the robot Rory and refers to him as, yeah, that's my pet. 
and it's it's showing that yeah she treats that robot rory like a pet like she has treated the other rory like a pet and i think what it's trying to show is that when she has time to reflect and then talk to her younger self like i guess we'd all like to do sometimes go back and talk to our younger self and she's like oh yeah he's the boy who came back from holidays with a funny haircut and said he'd been in a in a rock and roll band and he was the one who did this and he was the one who did that and the macarena was our first kiss and and when she remembers all these things i think she realizes what she has in him and the love sort of comes through so i i, I don't think it shies away from the fact she has been quite nasty dismissive treating him like a pet i mean it's explicitly said Mm. through the robot that she's been treating him like a pet i think this is maybe the story where and i don't know if it plays through in future episodes very well because i can't really think of what happens in future episodes but i'd like to think this is the turning point where she realizes that yeah i really do love this guy now that i've had time to think about it and talk to my younger self about it and and she has a change of heart and I totally understand where you're coming from, and that is mm. a perfectly valid and reasonable way for it to work for you. I'm, I don't dismiss that at all. Mm. But for me, when I compare... And, and this is what I'm talking about in that this episode doesn't exist on its own. It, it exists in a context. And when we look back on the whole Matt Smith era now and the whole of Amy's time in the, in, in the show now, and it, it exists in that context. The series before, you had Amy trapped in the big cube thing at the end of the series mm-hmm. and Rory basically sacrificed a thousand years of his life to, to guard her he made himself subservient to her to, to keep her safe in contrast when she's stuck alone for 30 years she makes Rory her pet and it makes him subservient to her and and I don't know whether this is a, is, a, is a deliberate move on the part of the show I don't think it is but the way that she can so easily dismiss robot Rory and just go, well, you were, you were a pet for 30 years. You've been my one companion for 30 years. But, oh, the other guy's back now. Bye. And, and completely dismiss him. I, I thought there was going to be some sort of emotional, like, I've got to let go of my robot Rory now. But he was just discarded. And that, to me, just reinforced my feeling of how disposable Rory is in that relationship. And then in the next series, they're, they're separating. Like, they go through that whole breakup. Yeah. And so it just, to me made Rory feel disposable and I really don't like Amy because of that Mm. food for thought there I think from both you and me for the listeners before we go on to Rory perhaps though I do want to say about Amy uh, and and Karen Gillan of course this was without a doubt the hardest role in the episode to play the two characters and I did some back reading on it background reading and she actually went to some lengths with her mannerisms and did some voice training for sure and even there was some extra padding in the costume not to make her look fat because she still looks quite quite lean but so that she'd actually move a bit differently move like an older person so they they did put in a lot of effort there but what astounds me dave is that they did this stellar job with the mannerisms, the voice. I think they tried very hard with the makeup. Sure, it doesn't work sometimes, but there are other times where young Amy and old Amy are together and they do look very different, even though it's both Karen Gillan. Yeah. But the hair, Dave, literally nothing with the hair. She's meant to be pushing 60. She should be grey, noticeably grey. I mean, just a, just between you and me, Dave, just about every woman I've known has started going grey in their 20s or early 30s. Uh, and, and here she's almost 60, and she's not grey at all. 
I thought that was very weird. And it, it actually distracted me at times. I was looking at it thinking, you're old Amy. Why don't you have grey hair? It would be the easiest thing to do. It's really funny, isn't it? Just how that can be something you notice and that bugs you. And until you pointed out to me, I completely not thought about it. No. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I've it's, it's just, it's, no, 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 I just think that's really, like, like, that's really, really telling that we can both watch the same show and something that was kind of bugging you and I, it, it didn't even occur to me. Like that, that just shows how different people can see a show so totally differently in microcosm. I like it. But, but no, I totally agree. Karen, Karen Gillan's performance and what they do with her is really, really good. The makeup isn't always ideal. It's suddenly, but, but yeah, um, very, very good performance. I want to make that clear. Mm. Shall we talk Rory? Rory is so good. I love Rory. And but before you go on, why did I have the feeling I was like setting a spinning top then? Like I just had Rory <laughs> and off Dave goes. Oh uh, Rory. Look, he he has been for me the the standout highlight of the Matt Smith era. Um it's not an era that I go back to that often, and so I haven't actually seen a lot of him. Um but watching this one just so quickly, I just thought this is why I've I know I love Rory. He's such such a lovely person like such a wonderful person he is genuinely kind he is genuinely thoughtful he is mm. genuinely brave uh, he is such a good character that i i want to be rory's friend you know i just want to be rory's mate mm. and arthur darvel's performance is so subtle even when he's playing against matt smith at Matt Smith's most unsubtle, and there's a lot of that in this episode. We'll get there. Um, even when he's playing against unsubtle Matt Smith, he's still on the level, and I admire that so much. Yeah, and look, that's something he carries on into Broadchurch, where he was the uh, the local minister. And I'd watch Broadchurch and think, I'd like to be friends with this guy. This is the kind of guy I could be really good mates with even though I have no interest in religion. Can I be friends with a minister like this if I have no interest in religion? I used to go on flights of fantasy about, you know, being friends with a minister because of the role he played in Broadchurch. It was very similar to to Rory in some ways. Um, But you're right. He is painted in this story as such a gentle, loving man. There's a moment where he sees echoes of hundreds of people who've been in the facility and he wonders if they were happy. And the doctor says, oh, Rory, only you'd think of that. And that's just one of the scenes that gets played up a lot, I think, because we know at the end he's going to have to have, make this terrible decision. And it's like this, this lovely, lovely man has to make this terrible, terrible decision. And I jotted down the line, this isn't fair, you're turning me into you, which he says to the doctor at one point. Mm. And, and I think we see Rory really stressed in this with the choices he has to make just an incredible choice he has to make you know which which amy does he want to keep and then when it's clear that the doctor's actually been leading the older amy along and has no intention of taking her uh how he has to deal with that and have the conversation with her you know yeah i I think that's where we need to go next in in our conversation rob because that's a very important point but again what sold me in the first third of this story which i think is by far the strongest part of the story was Rory's reaction to everything he was curious and he was heartfelt 
and I felt like this was a genuine identification character in the most true sense of the word, and that's that's a real strength of this episode. Mm, yeah, I, I do agree. So, should we talk about the Doctor? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll jump in first, because it sounds like you might have some negative stuff to say. <laughs> Uh, whereas I have some nice things to say, so I'm going to say them first. Uh, I think the Doctor gets some nicely dark scenes in this story, which I always liked because I think Smith does dark better than Tennant. Because I think Tennant always felt like he could go mean at any time, whereas Smith is... He, he doesn't always notice the effect he has on people, and because he's a genius, he can say things that rub people the wrong way. But it's always in a sweeter way. So when he goes dark, it's like... Oh shit. Whereas when Tennant went dark, it was like, yeah, Dave's being dark. Great. Um, so I always really liked the Smith Doctor doing dark. Even at the end, when the young Amy sort of sits up and's like, oh, where's where's the other me? And Smith just looks at the camera with this super dark expression and then looks away. I love that in the Doctor. I mean, that's something we hadn't really seen much of since the the darker McCoy sort of stuff. It's the stuff we all sort of fantasized about during the wilderness era. Surely, Dave, it's it's good. I really like that. I spoke earlier about how I'd seen a Charles Dickens story at the movies. Mm-hmm. So let me let me say this about the girl who waited. It was the best of Smith. <laughs> it was the worst of Smith. <laughs> Nicely played. Uh, there, there is some really good classic Smithy stuff in here. Uh, his stuff, again, in the opening episodes, like just grabbed me really quickly. His enthusiasm for the world they were about to visit and then to explore was exactly what I wanted in the Doctor. It was really good. That weird doctoriness that Smith just has so naturally came across throughout the episode. So so those best aspects of Smith's Doctor were definitely there. So um, before I go negative, and I am about to, mm-hmm. I, I want to I give that praise and say the best of Smith is definitely on display here. You mentioned before, Rob, the line, you're turning me into you. Mm. I don't like the idea that my doctor is somebody where becoming him is bad that actually sits really really uncomfortably with me the doctor can be alien his morals can sometimes be differently perspected from ours but at his heart he's never cruel he's never cowardly he's a good person and we all want you know you know we should be better for knowing the doctor you look at the russell t davies era and that is all about so many lives being better because they met the doctor so this idea of the Doctor just being so horrible did not sit well with me. And this episode does kind of rely on a lot of conceits. It relies on the conceit that Amy presses the wrong button, um, despite one being green and on the top and kind of more, a more natural pick. It relies on the conceit of the, the technology not working. It relies on the conceit of the robots now are killer robots because I'm not sure. Can we explore that in a moment? Mm. Um, but the biggest conceit is the idea that the Doctor's kind of stupid. Maybe stupid is the wrong word, but the Doctor makes really fundamental mistakes regularly in order to continue the plot going. And then it ends with the Doctor being callous and manipulative. I can live with the Doctor being manipulative when it ends in the destruction of the Daleks. Mm. The Doctor being manipulative and it ends with Rory just being emotionally shattered, particularly given how much I've just said Rory is a natural identification character for me. You know, I want to be like Rory. I want to feel like Rory. Rory, Rory's who I want to be mm. as a person. Mm. For the Doctor to then treat him that way felt very personal to me and very, very unpleasant. And I just thought, 
I don't like this. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, look, I can see I can see very clearly what what you're saying. And, uh, and and I can see very clearly what you're saying. Like it, it, this is a genuinely interesting conversation to me. Yeah, it's. I mean, what what other choices does the Doctor have? I mean, he's stuck in the TARDIS because again, we have the conceit that with his two hearts or his time or physiology, he can't go out where time is moving in a different way or whatever it is, and so he's sort of stuck in the TARDIS and does have to manipulate the situation. He has to get Rory out there to save. Amy, the older Amy complicates it. The two Amys talk and decide to she's the older Amy's going to save the younger Amy, but actually she's playing them because she's actually going to come along as well. That's her real plan. And the Doctor's having to sort of manipulate things to counter all of these things while he's stuck inside the TARDIS. So what what other choices does he have? Uh, you know, I think he's in a hard place. He, he's definitely in a hard place. Um, sidebar the Doctor not being able to leave the TARDIS, because I'm not quite sure why, is another conceit mm. um, in, in a story that is uh, he's, he's quite full of them. Um, the Doctor had the choice to tell the truth. Yeah, but what would that have done? I, I, I get that, and that's, that, that's, a, that's a complicated thing, and it's not mm. an easy thing. But lying was not... Like he, he wasn't lying to get a nice outcome. He was lying to get, I would say, an equally bad outcome, but he did it by lying to his two close friends. And I just can't... You asked me what choice did the Doctor have, to my mind, being honest with his two close companions, surely is another choice. We can explore if that was the right choice or the wrong choice, but we can't say that he didn't have another choice. Well, the other choice was to take the old Amy and let the young Amy grow to be the old Amy and then come with them then and and, and it becomes a loop. Or, or, or simply to say to them, look, there, there are two possibilities here. I can rescue the young Amy and the old Amy you will cease to exist. Do you do you choose that? Which in the end she does do. Hmm. You know, she does accept that when, the, when, when it's explained to her in a particular way. So, so it, it, it could have ended that way. Um, or, or to do what you suggested, but he could have got to the same place without doing what he did to Amy and Amy and Rory. I think there's a line where he justifies it at the end. You say, you know, he lied for no good reason, but back in the TARDIS, he says to Rory quite plainly, I told you we'd get her back and we got her back. There she is. And, and he just walks off like, you know, to him, that's, that's what he said he'd do. And he's done it. Yeah, and I could totally understand somebody watching that and thinking that's a really cool Doctor moment. I, I totally can, mm. um, but it didn't land that way for me. On a side note, I don't believe this is regarded as a Doctor Light episode, but it feels like Smithy could have recorded, I don't know, about 80% of his role in, in just a day or so, because it's just running around the TARDIS talking to, you know, scanner screens, basically. <laughs> Yeah, he's only on two sets, so yeah, it'd be interesting to, to see if that's the case. Um, I, I will say as well, just as a small thing, um, he did get some very good lines. I think my favourite was the, um, and that'll be the small act of vandalism alarm. That that actually made me laugh out loud. That was, <laughs> a, again, a really good Smithy moment. Yeah, there, there are some very funny lines in this story, like when young Amy and old Amy are together, and they're like, well, well how would we make this work? And Rory says, oh, at, at Christmas you always say you want an extra pair of hands. <laughs> That was like a laugh out loud moment for me. Yeah, there, there were some very good funny stuff in here. It, it is a very well written script. The robots, I really liked the design. 
I didn't understand why they were killer robots. Rob, did could you explain that to me? Did, did I miss a line? Well, I think at the beginning, it's, Amy, you don't have the, the physiology of the natives of this planet, so any drugs they try and give you will kill you. I mean, that that's a bit extreme to assume they'll, they'll kill. I mean, they just might make you ill. But it seems they have the ability to knock you out by touch. It's yep. sort of which, an, which, which, an which anaesthetic. Yeah. Yep. And then they administer the drug, which must be to counter the plague that all the people who are in that facility have. And because Amy is not of that race and doesn't have the plague being given, that will be like a toxin, I guess. And so that's why they will kill her. They And they keep saying this is a kindness, because to them it is a kindness. It is weird that she tries to reason with them and even reason with the supercomputer that's sort of running the whole thing, and it still won't sort of understand that she's alien. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, it's a really interesting directorial decision. I would be very interested to know if the writer intended the way the robots were displayed to, to actually be that, in that they're kind of directed and designed as scary killer robots, in that they do have that, you know, this is a kindness sort of catchphrase that's got that evil undertone, and, you know, they open their head up to have this horrible sort of Star Wars torture device, um, <laughs> you know, looking thing, and they, they, they chase around and they, they can't be reasoned with and, and all the rest of it. it. It felt to me like the director or the designer or somewhere's, someone's gone, ah, scary killer robots, awesome. And I don't think that the script wanted that to be the case. I thought they wanted it to be a little bit more subtle. I think, I think there's a bit of a dichotomy in, in intention there. But they, they do look good. They, they are scary. Like, as, as scary killer robots, they work. Oh, yeah. And, and I do think there is the intention, like you're saying, because they talk about the hand, the hand being very human-like, and I think flesh-like. They talk about being flesh-like to, to actually be actually a nice thing or a kindness, as it were. Yeah, but something might get lost in translation a bit there. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to concede that. Um, uh, location stood out for me. Yes, and we. I was, <laughs> was going to say, the garden, of course, gets reused uh, when we first meet Missy, and she's dancing around that sundial in a garden. I believe that's exactly the same garden. Interesting, because I, I did make the note here, and at the time, this felt like a very unusual, exotic alien world. Watching it this time, I thought... This is one of those things where they go to a brand new conference center and just pretend it's an alien world, which they would do a lot of as the series went on. I don't remember them doing that much of it before this. Um, I think it's very clever, and it, like it looks, it looks exactly the way it should. And, and, and doing it on location in that way is so effective. And I totally know I bought it the first time. This time, when I was watching it, sort of with the intention of making notes, I did sort of go that's a convention centre, or, or whatever it is. Um, so I thought it looked great, but it just uh, just amused me because I think that became more of a trope after this. Yeah, I think of one sort of camera angle in particular. I'm like, oh yeah, I think that's the bar. <laughs> like, <laughs> like where you line up, you know, when you're at the opera or something, you go out and get a, a beer. <laughs> uh, yes. So that's the location done and dusted. Dave, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into our uh, wrap-up? One final point, and I think it's a good one to, to do before we get to the wrap-up. You mentioned earlier, Rob, about whether this would have an effect going on. I got to the end of this one, and I actually did keep going and watch the first 10 minutes of The God Complex, and I was quite surprised that there was no reference to this at all, and Amy and Rory and the Doctor were all bestest buddies again. And it 
kind of reminded me that this wasn't written by Moffat. Because I think if this was a Moffat script, there would have been a tie-in emotionally to the next episode. You know, I think that they would have started the next episode where they finished this one, and they didn't. Again, that's probably not the episode's fault. Like, I can't downgrade the girl who waited because the God Complex forgets what's happened. But I did find it interesting. Well, with the way this season was put together, is it possible that maybe they were just doing standalone episodes because they didn't know where they'd even slip them into the the running order, perhaps? Yeah, look, it's very, very possible. I I think that makes a lot of sense. It's just very unmoffety. Like, we talk about Moffat, and and one of Moffat's abilities, whether you like it or not, is that he does put together these long-season, expanding, emotional character arcs. And so I just was genuinely surprised that, like... Gee, I wonder how they pick up from here in the next episode. No, they don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so overall, do we like it, Dave? Uh, no. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Short and I'm sweet. sorry. Yeah. No. Look. Look. There was stuff in here I enjoyed a lot more than I remembered. There was stuff in here I really appreciated. I think it looks good. I think it's written well. I think that the regulars, particularly Gillen and. Um, Darville will give really good performances. There's a lot to like in here and a lot to respect. I can certainly see how it would land emotionally for for another viewer. But let's not pretend that it didn't end exactly where it had to. Like, there was no way the Doctor was going to take both Amys along for the ride. Mm. So it, it's kind of like the Titanic in that sense. Like, you watch that movie knowing at some point the ship has to sink. I watched this episode knowing at some point old Amy has to go. For all the things I liked about it, and and there were a lot of things, at its core, it asked me to buy into a relationship that I do not like or respect. Mm. And that grated very, very badly with me. And when I added on top of that the fact that I did not like the Doctor, the Doctor was not just weird, not just alien, he was an He was an absolutely unpleasant bastard. Mm. The net effect of all that is that I left the episode very unhappy which is a shame because at the start of the episode, I was loving it. Rob, what about you? Well, earlier you said that I pointed out Amy's red hair wasn't grey, and now, you know, you you probably can't unsee that or unthink that. I'd largely forgotten about their relationship issues. I knew that she sort of treated him like a pet. Of course, I always remember how she tried to sleep with the doctor, etc., etc. But the actual minutiae of all that, I had just forgotten so to actually be reminded of, oh yeah, this was a bit of a weird, toxic relationship, does sort of colour how I see things now. Uh, although, sorry, that's <laughs> that's fine because I did I did counter earlier, and I think it's I think it was a strong counter that uh, she has treated a, a Rory like a pet, but through talking to her younger self, she comes to realise that. No, it, it absolutely you know. was a strong counter. I I totally totally buy what you're selling. Yeah. And I think that's that's there. But overall, I think this story is a great standalone piece in a sort of an era, the Moffat era, where there were a lot of arcs and things being tied together and River Song would come back and this would happen and that would happen. To just have this one little story, I thought was really great. And something we didn't touch on, the music. I think the music in this was really good. I like the Dark Doctor. You say ah. I say Dark Doctor. Yep, yep. And I think they do so much with just the the three-person crew of the TARDIS, some robots, a location or two. To me, this is clever Doctor Who. 
this isn't throwing 10,000 things at the screen and hoping if people are wowed by half of them, then they'll think they saw something good when perhaps they, they didn't. I think this is doing the hard yards, the hard graft, and, and making something bigger than the sum of its parts. It's just like three actors, some robots, two sets, and they make something out of it. I really, really, really like episodes of Doctor Who that do that. I think they take more imagination in general. And for that reason alone, I think I like this episode. Rob, there is nothing that you've just said where I'm sitting there going, did Rob and I watch the same episode? (laughs) There's nothing like that. Every point you make, I'm going, okay, yeah, I see that, I get that. And this has, to me, been a really interesting example of how two people can watch the same 45 minutes of television and be impacted completely differently. And particularly with it being so far in the past now, I think we can both see it with different eyes, for, for better or worse, uh, than we did at the time. Yeah, I, I think so. There was, As I say, there was stuff in there that I had completely forgotten. There was stuff in there I enjoyed a lot more than I remembered. But we are each also bringing our own personal baggage to the episode, mm. which is inevitable. That's, that's, that's a reality. You know, you think of certain Star Wars movies. Different fans brought different personal baggage to those movies and walked away with completely different perspectives of the outcome i think that's a very natural thing mm. and 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 again um maybe i'm just trying to justify my dislike of it but I, <laughs> I, I i i do think it's been a really interesting conversation from that point of view all right well let's get some listener feedback on the episode i'll kick us off with owen price he's kellogg's 24 on twitter hello owen uh, always a good person who feeds back to us a, a lot on twitter actually owen he, he says yeah he says i love this episode amy is kick ass and the choice Rory has to make is heartbreaking. The real consequences of travel with the Doctor are explored and moral questions abound. Not sure why McRae hasn't written more episodes, really. He clearly has a red pen. <laughs> Which is a reference, I think, to us talking about Chris Chibnall not having a red pen. Yeah, that is definitely a very good comment about McRae. He, he writes very judiciously and very conservatively and says a lot with, with, with not much dialogue. I think the problems in this are a lot more about the final production than they are about his script. Fair enough. Uh, we have one here from Millie McKenzie who says, Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this one. I've watched it only once, but I remember it was kind of trippy and had one truly heartbreaking moment, and we got to see a side of the Doctor that was not too pleasant, that she would lie to old Amy that she would be rescued two in order to save young Amy or something along those lines you know I just need to go watch it again I've probably got it all wrong no no that's a pretty good summation Millie thank you yeah and and she says a side of the doctor that's not too pleasant you say it's a spectrum (laughs) good good uh now when we threw this out on Twitter uh and I think Dave you said I'm gonna I'm gonna go and watch it now make my notes we got one from uh, our mate Rob at 42 to Doomsday, Dr. Sinister, Dread Sinister. Uh, he says, pray for him. Let's uh, pray for you, Dave. <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I, I promise I went in with a very open mind. I promise. I promise. Very good. Uh, we got one here from Scott Michael via Facebook. And he says, I've only watched the Smith era once as transmitted. This one was a standout in a mixed bunch. I think that Scott's view is probably the majority view. I think so too. Mm. Yeah, mm. I, re- I really genuinely do. Uh, and finally, Oscar Groucho. At Oscar Groucho is another regular correspondent with us on Twitter. Hello, Oscar. 
he says, A Decalogue short story in a season of bombastic myth arc stories. Remarkable, yet poignant. Imelda Staunton's sterling support showing the chops that would later make her Netflix's final inhabitant of The Crown. Always a pleasure to speak to you folks. Keep up the good work. Stay safe. And for people out there who are wondering what a Decalogue short story is, there was a series of uh, virgin books. Oh, gosh, this would be mid mid-90s i think dave they were the yes. decalogue books yeah and they were literally short doctor who stories and they were often quite imaginative they were they were always on a theme too they'd sort of get a general theme and, and link all the stories together through a theme and i can see exactly what he means by saying it's a decalogue short story because it is this lovely little self-contained thing that almost could be a short story dave yeah no i think that's a really really insightful comment there yeah absolutely yeah so uh cheers oscar well, that's our listener feedback. Thank you, as always, for uh, for contributing. And I look forward to hearing some comments next month about uh, whether you agree with Rob, me, neither of us, or both of us. <laughs> exactly. Now, to close, Dave, we've got a few things to rattle through. Uh, are you watching anything at the moment? Anything you want to mention? Uh, look, I'll just rattle off a couple of things that I have either watched or rewatched. Uh, in terms of rewatched, I did work through all of the 1971-72 uh, Six Wives of Henry VIII and Elizabeth R, mm-hmm. which I thoroughly enjoyed. They're absolutely amazing. Glenda Jackson as Queen Elizabeth is extraordinary. Speaking of all creatures great and small, we have a certain actor from there playing the Earl of Leicester, who, who is great in that. Less less impressed with the Six Wives of Henry VIII, although Patrick Troughton is that, and he is extraordinarily good. Um, and, and Keith Michelle is, is very good as Henry. They make the unfortunate decision to do six parts, each of which is about 80 minutes, but one per wife. So oh. Catherine of Aragon gets sort of 35 years condensed into 80 minutes. Anne of Cleves gets two conversations stretched across 80 minutes. So, <laughs> uh, so it doesn't quite balance out there, but it was very good. In terms of new stuff, I've seen series two of The Politician, which, look, I love Ben Platt. I didn't think this was as good as the first series, but it was fun. Uh, the new Love, Victor series I just thought was extraordinarily lovely and, and really, really adorable. Uh, I finally watched The Bodyguard, which I haven't watched for a while, but everyone at work was telling me, you've got to watch The Bodyguard, you've got to watch The Bodyguard. And I thought it was really great until the end where it fell apart completely, but glad I watched it. Uh, the new Alex Ryder series, because I was a big fan of Anthony Horowitz when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And this this is a... Look, it's not amazing, but it was a perfectly good, fun adaption of... Uh, of the series, so I enjoyed that. And I have got one episode of Star Trek Picard to go. I started in March, then went away to America and got distracted, but <laughs> I've got back to it. I've watched um, up to episode nine. I've got one to go. So, Rob, we have often reviewed sort of sci-fi type stuff in the past. Mm. You up for Picard? I'm up for Picard. I've been up for Picard since the week I finished watching it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. All right, well, let's let's do that. Alrighty. I haven't been watching a lot lately. As I said, I've had my head stuck in books, but I have been watching The Last Detective, like I mentioned. I've started The Test, which is a documentary series on Amazon about um, the new era of Australian cricket, post um, Smithy and, and co. getting in trouble for ball tampering. I've seen the ads for that. That looks good. It's it's real fly-on-the-wall stuff. If you want to see Justin Langer let off about 15 F-bombs in the space of about 20 seconds at the team, uh, you'll certainly I, I, see that in the first episode. <laughs> I do want to see that, so I will watch that. 
<laughs> it's quite good. And finally, something, a series on, um, if you can call it a series, it's a, it's a YouTube channel called Abroad in Japan. It's a chap, I think his name is Chris Broad, hence Abroad uh, is sort of the joke title of his channel. And he is uh, a former English-Japanese teacher uh, in Japan. And so he's living there as an, as an Englishman. And he gets around now with his camera and sometimes uh, a couple of his mates. And he makes really informative, funny, very interesting videos about living in Japan and all different aspects of it. And I find his stuff, which is usually about 15 to 20 minutes per video, very, very watchable, very fascinating. I, I like this more than most TV shows at present, I've got to say. Oh, interesting. The start of this year, I did see James May's series about uh, Japan, which is on one of the streaming services, and I can't remember which. Our Man um, in Japan, yes. That's the one. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was very good as well. Yeah, this is kind of similar, yet kind of different. Same, same, but different, as the kids say. <laughs> nice. Alrighty. Now, what else have we got, Dave? Uh, I want to put in a plug for a new podcast. Uh, we mentioned friend of the podcast, Mark Cochran, earlier he and another contributor to the podcast Ian Martin have decided it's time to do the great journey and they are going through and they have put together the all of time and space podcast which will be launching with their first episode around about the time this episode goes out uh, so they will I assume start with an unearthly child and if you stick around for about four episodes uh, I turn up interesting I mean I have heard the trailer I've heard your little quote on there about the Beatles Dave uh, yes, I hope that makes sense in context. <laughs> <laughs> it made pretty good sense to me. I thought that was good. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this as well. Uh, Mark Cockrum, of course, does the Nerdology podcast, a very yes. l- listenable podcast voice. Ian, as you mentioned, has done the Doctor Who A to Z here on our very channel, so I, I know his voice well. And I'm looking forward to those voices meshing with a guest and talking about Doctor Who on the and doing the Great Journey, I think it's a great concept. I'll be listening. Yeah, and look, the wonderful thing about Great Journey podcasts is that they start with my favourite era of the show. <laughs> Lucky you, <laughs> very much so. Rob, what have we got next month? Dave, it's been I guess a year since we've done a, a Doctor centric podcast, and in the past we've looked at some classic Doctors. We looked at Davo, for example. We looked at uh, Hartnell, for example. And so, a year ago, we did Pertwee. And a year ago, we did Pertwee. So we've done three from the classic era, and there's only seven of them to begin with. We're going to do one from New Who. It's one that's close to your heart, one that I enjoy very much as well. Next episode, we are doing the Chris Eccleston era of Doctor Who, or Chris Eccleston as the Doctor. Chris Eccleston as the Doctor. So it's our Chris Eccleston Ninth Doctor special coming in August. Yeah, looking forward to that so much. If you have thoughts, email us, hello at the dwshow.net tweet us whatever uh facebook us we, we, we'll take it anyway 15 years ago yeah yeah but that's not as long as when we were <laughs> listeners we were putting together what we're going to do for the rest of the year and we said oh let's do that particular season and i won't tell you which one it was but it was over 30 years old and <laughs> and in my mind it happened i don't know 15 years ago <laughs> yeah that was a bit of a rude awakening um, but no, look, we did we did have a bit of a chat and we've got the rest of 2020 plotted out. Look, I'm certainly excited, but given that, you know, I helped plot it out, it would be worrying if I wasn't. <laughs> exactly. Um, but look, we've we've ratted on enough. I've look, I've genuinely enjoyed this deep dive into the girl who waited. 
I watched an episode I haven't watched for a long time. I've got a newer take, a new appreciation of other aspects. I've really enjoyed hearing your um, take on it, Rob, and I think it's been very different. And that's what fandom at its best can be, disagreeing convivially. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and right back at you, I've really enjoyed this as well. So while Millie McKenzie goes for the sick bucket as we end on, the, <laughs> on this bipartisan note, uh, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.